South African trumpeter, composer, band leader, author and activist Hugh Masekela left us in January 2018. A huge loss, leaving a void that none can truly fill. In Hugh's honour, we revisit a programme about the little-known world of South African jazz, from which this musical jazz emerged, starting back in 1959. Hello, I'm Georges Collinet with Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. In 1959, the Jazz Epistles recorded their first and only album, a masterpiece rooted in the lore of South African jazz. But why has no one heard of it? Well, only 500 copies were made before it was buried for decades. It was the only time the legendary Abdullah Ibrahim, Hugh Masekela and Kipi Moketsi recorded together and remarkably, it was the first commercially released LP made by an all-black South African band. This brilliant era of music would almost be lost and forgotten, erased by the brutality of apartheid. Jazz attracted mixed audiences, that kind of jazz. The really improvised, swinging, individual expression stuff. And of course, the mixing became the problem for the apartheid government. It was mixing. In fact, a lot of the apartheid legislation was put in place to get rid of the presence of mixed race people. What people have to realize is that apartheid, you know, was not only racist, it was stupid. It's going to take maybe a hundred years to repair the destruction. Those are our music guides, author Carol Muller and pop star Hugh Masekela. They joined Satima B. Benjamin, Rashid Lani and other South African musicians for a story of swing, suppression and freedom in Reimagining Jazz in Africa, Cape Town Cosmopolitans and beyond. But first, we take you on a jazz tour from around the continent. Here is new music from the Cora Jazz Trio.
Jazz Trio on Miles Davis's All Blues, released in 2011, with pianist Abdullah Jabate and griot percussionist Moussa Sissoko from Senegal, and the griot Jali Moussa Jawara on Kora. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. When Africans were first listening to jazz, like most of the world when they first were hearing jazz, jazz was a dance music. Timothy Mangin is a doctoral candidate in ethnomusicology at Columbia University. In West Africa, with the percussion and the feel of the music, people are really become engaged when the music allows them to get up and dance. So in that way, it attracts a larger audience. Mangin sat down with producer Simon Rantner to talk about what jazz signifies throughout Africa. So, Timothy Mangan, I'm going to play you a quote. This is from a recent interview with the extraordinarily talented and very famous trumpet player from South Africa, Hugh Masekela. Jazz is not American. Please, you know, it got called jazz by journalists like you. But, you know, African-Americans in New Orleans, like Louis Armstrong, those were African people, you know. So it's natural that kind of thing should be happening in Africa because it comes from there. The so you don't think jazz is an African-American art form? You think jazz is an African art form? Of course. As soon as you say African-American, it's over. <laughs> you know, it's like opera. Opera is an Italian thing, right? But you can't say it's an Italian-American. You know, Italian is Italian. African is African. <laughs> So, what's up, Tim? My understanding is that jazz is this American art form. I've been raised to think this. I almost associate jazz as American as baseball. Am I just confused? <laughs> no, it's just like very American, actually. <laughs> um, so, Randy Weston just came out with his autobiography, African Rhythms. And he's very clear about this. For him, jazz is an African music, and he acknowledges his African roots. And he was very proud of that. There are a lot of African-Americans who are very proud of their African roots. And there are also African-Americans who acknowledge their African roots, but they claim fervently that they're Americans. And it's that diversity of thought that goes into what we would call a jazz tradition that gives it such vibrancy and such life. So you can have so many different voices talking about and feeling and expressing that complexity itself. Carol Muller is an ethnomusicologist from the University of Pennsylvania, and this is what she had to say. Well, people will claim jazz as African because they are reclaiming it. There's just a kind of continuity and authenticity that you construct in that way. But I think right from the beginning, people have heard what African-Americans are doing. And this is right in the journalistic record in South Africa, certainly, as being Africans in America. So they have identified what is happening really as Africans making something in a modern way or in a particularly American way. But in the end... Africa is where they come from. Well, Timothy Mangan, I'm going to play you some music from a musician from Ethiopia who's actually one of the first Africans to come to America to get an advanced music degree in 1958 at the Berklee College of Music. And his name is Mulatu Astake. And... This is an invention that he made 30 years ago, something he calls Ethio Jazz. Mm -hmm. 
So Tim, this clearly has its own harmonic language, and it's not Western. It's not American. What is it? It's East African jazz. I love the way he's taken this funky pentatonic scale that's from his place and his community, and he's mixed it with American jazz and the jazz tradition that he's learned in Berkeley, and knowing the being versed in jazz vocabulary, he still stays with the pentatonic scale. Well, Malatu actually just opened a jazz school, believe it or not, in mm -hmm. Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And this is what he had to say when he thought about bringing jazz back to Africa. I always believe that jazz has a great influence on African music. So I always believe like we should try to bring it back home. Why is it developing somewhere else? Jazz is like freedom in music. It's a different life of a jazz musician because in our work, we can reach the whole world, listen, play, and touch the world with jazz music. I think it's great. The way he summarizes this is pretty much a music of the 20th century. And it's a music that travels around the world. It's the music that can touch different places. It's wonderful synopsis the way he puts it together. They're called jazz because the sound is the sound of the 20th century, and for them it's a world music. It's a way for them to connect to the rest of the world and assert themselves as modern individuals. So often you'll see signs for a jazz band and you don't hear what anything close to what you think jazz would sound like. It's because in those places, jazz has come to represent a type of global music. So why don't we listen to this? In this next cut that we're going to hear, there are going to be more identifiable features of jazz. Well, the rhythmic cycle reminds me, again, from West Africa, I would guess uh, Senegal. Ha! Right on. I chose this track because of the way that they use local instruments to do a lot of improvisation. So we have a balafone in the background. 
which is like a marimba kind of sounding instrument. Uh, there's also a Fulani flute. And then we have the Western instruments like the soprano sax, tenor sax, and the trap drums, which are doing this really kind of funky, I don't know if it's a shuffle rhythm or not, but they're doing a great funky rhythm in the background. And do they consider themselves to be playing jazz right now? Some of them do, and some of them don't. Actually, the composer of this tune, Thomas Valle, says, no, it's not jazz. But because it's all instrumental, and there's a lot of improvisation, a lot of people in Senegal consider this a jazz group, but not only a jazz group, but more of an avant-garde kind of jazz group. That's fascinating. That's great. That's great stuff. Well, Timothy Mangan, thank you for talking about jazz in Africa. And I thought it would be nice to go out with a story from this Kora player from the Gambia, West Africa. Again, from the same region we're talking about with a lot of this music. He actually performs with the American jazz pianist, Randy Weston, who we talked about before. And his name is Salio Suso from the famous Griot family, the Suso family. You may know Fode Musa Suso. In the Manding uh, Griot Society? That's right. And his father, obviously, being a griot, is also a musician. And Salio tells this story about confronting his father about playing the kora in a jazz setting. When I was a little boy, and my father was like, first time he heard about kora playing with the drum set and flute and trumpets. And uh, I was listening to the radio and he's like, he come to me and said, but you listen, this is not music. I said, why, why you mean this is not music? He said, you, you, you kora, you put these drums into the kora. Kora, you know, is just good by itself. But you put those things there, it's not a kora anymore. I said, no, dad, this is what they call jazz. And he said, what is jazz? I said, jazz is something that different people come together and different ideas and play music. That's the jazz. Timothy Mangain also says Africans explored jazz in many other places throughout the continent, like in Guinea, in Nigeria, and there is jazz in Morocco and Egypt and beyond. But so-called jazz in all these places does not compare to the intensity or loyalty South Africans have for swing. At least as early as the 1930s, they were entranced by American culture, our vaudeville, our gospel choirs, even our minstrel shows, unlike anywhere else on the continent. Jazz, to me, is, it's like a church. I love jazz. I love the feeling of it. Jazz is the only music that I like. I sleep jazz, I dream jazz. During the late 1950s, South Africa was a jazz-crazy black country. Saxophonist Dudley Tito and bassist Big Tin Sele remember growing up in the city of Port Elizabeth, hearing American jazz on the radio, like Glenn Miller's In the Mood. The song was so popular, it was even arranged for their own African language. Situation, don't 
I listen to a lot of Charlie Mingus and Ray Brown, Max Roche. Mingus was my favorite because he, his music was so spontaneous. Also, the big bands were so beautiful. Joke Ellington, Count Bursey, those guys were so inspirational to us. Oh, I guess she's just jealous because she ain't got what I got. Quit kidding yourself. Not only have I got everything you got, but a whole lot more. South Africans were also impressed by the glamour of Hollywood. Professor Carol Muller from the University of Pennsylvania says classic black American films were extremely popular in the segregated neighborhoods. It's also the films that were shown in the black townships and the urban areas, um, really as a mechanism of social control. But the big, two biggest movies were Stormy Weather and Cabin in the Sky. Cabin in the Sky is with uh, Duke Ellington and Lena Horne. I suddenly feel a musical urge. Mrs. Jackson, to your musical age. Many couldn't help but emulate these slick jazz musicians on screen. The way they dressed, the way they talked. Most importantly, the music they played. Suddenly, South African jazz dance bands popped up in townships everywhere. The Jazz Dazzlers, the Edit Swingsters, Fans were fanatically drawn to the music. They organized secret listening parties where they could hear their favorite American players in their private homes. Again, Professor Murr. Some of the musicians said that they would walk for miles because they heard somebody, you know, 10 miles away had just bought a recording and they wanted to hear it. You didn't even know the person. You just arrived at their house and said, I need to listen. So there was a kind of open door policy, I guess is how you would say it. Then came the imitators. Alto saxophonist Kipi Moketsi proclaimed he was the Charlie Parker of South Africa. Ben Sachmo Singer named himself after Louis Armstrong. And Hugh Masekela played like Dizzy Gillespie and Clifford Brown. There's this lovely quote by Hugh Masekela. He says that when Clifford Brown died, he was so passionate about Clifford Brown's music he sobbed his eyes out. I mean, he sobbed his heart out to the point that his grandmother had to really kind of console him as if his closest relative had died. He'd never met him, but he knew his music so intimately. Here's South Africa's first jazz recording, the jazz epistle, first one, with the 25-year-old Abdullah Ibrahim performing his piece, Okajonga Pambili.
Boka Jonga Pombili by Abdullah Ibrahim with Claude Shonge on bass and Jean Lettimore on drums. Wow, does this sound like it came straight out of the American Blue Note catalog? Nope, these are the jazz episodes. Recorded in South Africa, featuring a very young Abdullah Ibrahim, Yuma Sekela, and Kipi Moketsi. Author Carol Muller writes about these formidable players in our new book, Musical Echoes. These were musicians who were playing all the time. And they were playing in many different contexts, engaged with, and this is what Abdullah says all the time. I heard music from all over the world. There were African-American sailors who came into Cape Town and played at a club called the Navigator's Den. That's where actually Abdullah got his um, nickname, Dollar Brand, because he was always hanging out with African-American sailors. So the issue of Cape Town in particular being a port city is very crucial. It's halfway between the east and the west, as it were, which is why it was originally um, colonized anyway. So at this time, Abdullah was um, woodshedding heavy. I mean, he was not doing anything but honing his craft and developing his skills. You're listening to The Scullery Department, again performed by the Jazz Epistles with Yuma Sekela. Scullery Department is the kitchen where they wash the dishes. I think uh, it was a joke in the band because when we had the Epistles, uh, we were in demand, you know, in white uh, clubs and hotels, but, uh, and we used to fill the places, but we were not allowed there, so like, the kitchen was our dressing room. We came through the back with the workers. Masekela and Kipi Moketsi could remember, discrimination was a way of life. When the Boer nationalists came to power in 1948, they imposed one of the cruelest social experiments this world had ever seen. Slavery is like black Americans were ripped away from the continent. Singer Satima B. Benjamin. But you know, we had, with apartheid, our continent ripped away from us. In February of 1955, thousands of armed white policemen invaded a poor-colored neighborhood in Johannesburg. The government recently passed the Group Areas Act. So Firetown was now declared a European-only neighborhood. Musicians Yuma Sekela, Miriam Makeba and 60,000 residents were given 12 hours to pack their belongings and leave their homes. 
Author Carol Muller says families and businesses in Sophia Town and other mixed-race neighborhoods were destroyed. There's no doubt about it that District 6 was a very vibrant, culturally interesting, linguistically interesting, and musically very, very amazing, as was Cato Manor in Durban and um, Sophia Town in Johannesburg. So these were these very vibrant places, and it really was that they were also the places where jazz could develop. The refugees of Sophia Town were classified by their specific ethnic group or mixed-race status. They were given a loaf of bread, a bottle of soda pop, and a new home in a gated, highly restricted rural area where they could only live with their own kind. If you had a band that was racially mixed, you couldn't operate. You couldn't move from one area to the other. If you wanted to have black people in a white area, you had to have a special permit to move from one area to the next. It was 1960 when thousands of black demonstrators gathered in Sharpville in protest against the apartheid laws that forced them to carry passbooks. Police retaliated by opening fire on the protesters without warning. 69 people were killed and 180 were injured. The Sharpville massacre sent shockwaves throughout the world. American musicians Max Roach and Abby Lincoln created this musical response, Tears for Johannesburg. Massive protests and strikes broke out across the country. The government declared a state of emergency. Pass laws became even more restrictive. Well, then you couldn't work. Then you couldn't go into the white areas anymore. There were no places to perform because you could not have a mixed audience. It was always because this music attracted a mixed audience. There was no way. They imported Portuguese musicians, Greek musicians to play in the white areas. Colored people, we couldn't play there anymore. So the venues disappeared. You know, the places to perform. Most of South Africa's best talent left the country. Yuma Sekela, Abdullah Ibrahim, Satima B. Benjamin found sanctuary overseas. So did Chris McGregor. The white pianist is credited for having the first South African mixed-race band, the Blue Notes. McGregor, with Dudu Pakwana and others, risked their lives touring all over the country with their unlawful group. They eventually escaped. And before they fled, they made one last recording. They would never return home again. McGregor died in exile in 1990.
Vortex Special by Chris McGregor and the Blue Note from the album Township Butt, recorded in Cape Town in 1964. Learn more about Chris McGregor's last South African recording session at our website, afropop.org. Hip deep. There you'll see interviews with our featured scholars and musicians, Carol Muller and Satima B. Benjamin. Coming up, the atrocity of apartheid. Musicians in exile and freedom fighters back home in reimagining jazz in Africa, Cape Town cosmopolitans and beyond. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Here's a 1965 recording with trumpeter Hugh Masekela live at New York City's Village Gate. When the young men are recruited from the countryside of South Africa to come and work in the gold mines of Johannesburg, in the packed trains that carry them from the mines, or rather from the country to the mines, they usually sing many songs reminiscing of times of old. This is one such song and it speaks of the times of our forefathers when the sky was the roof and the ground was the floor and things were much less complicated. What you have to realize was that South Africa was at war. The indigenous people of South Africa were at war with the occupiers and the colonial governments and all that for 300 years. So by the time I grew up, strikes and boycotts and, and rallies and, and marches and all, they were part of life. It was not like I went into politics. Our life was a life of resistance because we were underfoot, so uh, we didn't have to go to political school or analyze what we're doing. We're already conquered, but we're not beaten. In the 1960s, Masekela, along with students, professionals, and tens of thousands of other South Africans, left their homes to seek a better life abroad. The trumpeter and his future wife, Miriam Makeba, found refuge in London and later New York. Satima B. Benjamin and her boyfriend, Abdullah Ibrahim, settled in Switzerland. We knew this guy, Paul Meyer, who was in Zurich, and he said, okay, you guys, I can find Abdullah a place to play here. Do a concert, collect some money, say you're leaving, and then we ended up in Zurich. And there was this club called the Africana, so Abdullah was playing solo. Then I heard, Duke Ellington is coming into town. I kind of knew that Duke Ellington was dealing with Frank Sinatra, Reprise Records. So I went there, there were just like so many, you know, the women with their Swiss furs and things, just trying to get into that dressing room. The door kept opening and closing and opening and, I don't know, somehow the, you know, Ellington caught my eye. He said, 
Oui, little wren. Who are you? I explain I'm from South Africa and that I'd heard about Lepre's records and that if he finds six acts that he likes, he can record for Frank Sinatra's company. And if he would come with me to this club, there's this trio that's it's my boyfriend, you know. I'm sure you would love them. Could you just come with me? We got in a cab, we pulled up at the Africana. I know Abdullah couldn't believe what he was seeing. I wasn't believing it myself. He listened and he said, my goodness, this is wonderful. He heard the trio. He said, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Listen, can the two of you be at my hotel at 10.30 in the morning? We need to talk. I'm telling you, it was snowing. We did not sleep that night. We, we couldn't wait for 10.30 to go to the Borolak Hotel. We went there, we went up to Ellington's room. I mean, we were like really poor. I, like, I just remember I had raggedy clothes. And he says, all right, you go and talk to my accountant. He's going to give you guys money. And you get on a train. And in five days, I'm going to meet you in the Barclay Studios in Paris. I just remember someone met us at the station, took us to this hotel on the Champs Elysees. I had never stayed in a hotel like that. It was so grand. And then... From there, someone picked us up, took us to the Barclay Studios. Duke Ellington walked in. He said, okay, so what are we gonna do? So Abdullah sits down and I decide, okay, I'm gonna do, I got it bad. So Ellington says, what, hold it. She's singing my song. And he comes running out and he says to Abdullah, Move off, move off. And there's Ellington sitting. And I thought, oh my God, this is, this is, inc I could just drop dead now, or I could sing like I never sang before. He don't love me like I love him. that he should I got it bad and that ain't good Uh... 
just crying my heart out Lord above me please make him love me the way that he I got it bad and that ain't good. Satima B. Benjamin with Duke Ellington on a morning in Paris, recorded in 1963. This session was lost for most of Benjamin's career. Ibrahim says the recording was given to the Mafia, only to resurface 30 years later in 1996. However, a portion of this session did get released on Frank Sinatra's label. Duke Ellington presents... The Dollar Brand Trio. And I'm telling you, if he had just said the Dollar Brand Trio, would have been one thing. But when it came out on Reprise Records, Duke Ellington presents, I don't know what Abdullah thinks or what he says or what anybody says, but I know it changed. You know, we just got more work in the whole of Europe, we got decent fees. We went to play at Antibes, the jazz festival, Montreux. It just changed. Many of South Africa's exiled jazz players also thrived overseas. Harry Belafonte helped Yuma Sekela and Miriam Makeba become international stars. Satima B. Benjamin launched her record label, Ekapa, 
And author Carol Muller wrote a new book about her life entitled Musical Echoes, South African Women Thinking in Jazz. Abdullah Ibrahim would release dozens of critically acclaimed albums. While its exiled players found their artistic voice overseas, some of them pushing the limits of the jazz avant-garde, Musicians back home continued to live in a state of terror and hardship. All kinds of stories about musicians who have to play for the police <laughs> to prove that they are real musicians, that they can play their instruments and they hadn't stolen the instruments. Trombonist Jonas Guangua remembers the music scene as the soundtrack for knife fights between local and visiting criminal gangs. Saxophonist Patrick Pacha. It was a personal decision for each musician that would one choose to go abroad or would one choose to stay around. Some of us stayed around because we felt we needed to hold fort. We needed to retain this culture as much as we were struggling financially because we believed that South Africa will be at some stage liberated. On June 16, 1976, school children living in Soweto Township outside Johannesburg rose up. They protested against a new law that said all Africans must be taught in Afrikaans, the sister language to Dutch. Carol Muller says for these students, Afrikaans only symbolized colonial oppression. Then, of course, the security forces came in and just killed children. 176 children, women and men, were killed. Another 500 perished from riots in the aftermath. So this was about that time Abdullah Ibrahim was back in South Africa and he went over to a piano and he was playing and they were jamming around with him with Basil Mandenberg Kutsia and maybe Robbie Jansen and a few others. And um, out of that kind of jam session, it's very Paul Simon-ish kind of conversation, um, came this tune, Mannenberg is where it's happening, and surprisingly became extremely popular. It did become a kind of unofficial anthem of the anti-apartheid struggle, certainly in the Cape area. Music was changing too. Musicians swapped their acoustic instruments for electric guitars, basses, and keyboards. Big Teen Sele changed from jazz musician to freedom fighter. We played in a show raising funds for the people who were detained. The show was called Save the Children. That's where the trouble started with me. The apartheid government notoriously arrested people, anyone they perceived as a threat. It was not uncommon for prisoners to die in custody without trial. Their cause of death? Suicide or some other mysterious event. Because of these songs that I was singing, the following day, when I woke up in the morning, I had a big bang knock at the door. Who are they? The special branch, special branch. They took me to their place where they threatened me. They beat me up. I lost some teeth, front teeth there. They wanted to know what songs were you singing? Why did you sing those songs? 
I told them, these were just uh, church songs. These songs are not political or something like that. But all in all, it was very, very hard. Jumping tear gas, jumping all the policemen after every show we play. On Friday, February 2nd, 1990, President F.W. de Klerk announced the end of apartheid. Four years later, Nelson Mandela, a political prisoner for 32 years, became South Africa's first elected leader. conquered, but we were not beaten. Trumpeter Hugh Masekela. By 1990s, it all turned around again. People don't know that in 1994, it was more than 330 years when we voted. It was the first peaceful day in South Africa since 1652. Before the election, Masekela received a letter of solidarity from the imprisoned Mandela. Masekela was so moved by his words that it inspired him to write one of the all-time great freedom songs. Masekela took this song around the world, performing it in front of hundreds of thousands of cheering fans, all crying out for social justice. Although jazz may not be as popular as it once was in South Africa, there have been many modern masters to carry on the tradition, like Gideon Tsukumalo, Bekin Seleku, Kaifus Semenya, Winston Mankunkungozi, the recently passed Zim Nkakwana, and Rashid Lani. But this great jazz tradition still doesn't explain a greater mystery. Why South Africa? How do you explain its longevity? Pianist Rashid Lani and Professor Carol Muller speculate. Jazz as an art form could be the highest form of democracy that musicians can experience in a band setup. So everyone gets to perform, everyone gets acknowledgement, they own 15 minutes of fame. And so that democracy, that democratic expression of freedom was very attractive to people that were under oppression. So if you're under oppression and you, I'm feeling, wow, I can play, I can actually do whatever I want. It gives you an avenue, gives you a window, you know, to actually see your soul fly. There is some sense in which South African jazz is much more known now because musicians left. When these musicians went to Europe, by all accounts, they didn't seek out just black musicians. They had a vision of a non-racial jazz producing community. And, you know, I'm quite sure that some of the music that was produced in sort of exile or in diaspora even, there wouldn't even have been as much jazz as there is now. And perhaps if South Africans had just stayed in South Africa, those kinds of bridges wouldn't have been built. Thank you, Carol Muller. 
pick up her book about the life of Satima B. Benjamin called Musical Echoes, South African Women Thinking in Jazz. From Duke University Press, go to afropop.org, hip deep, and see full interviews with Muller and Benjamin, plus over 60 other hip deep programs, including this one, On Demand. Simon Rantner wrote and produced this program thanks to Timothy Mangan and our production crew, Valerie March, Alexandra Bedford, Hal Bergold, and Henry Molovsky. A big thank you to Diane Fram and Elijah Madiba at the International Library of African Music and South African Tourism. Another thank you to Ralph Ramsey, CEO and founder of Pan Jazz. More information at panjazz.com about their future concerts. And thanks to Jennifer Pritiwa Samuel. Stay tuned for our piece on Mulato Astatke coming to Afropop soon. My Afropop partner, Sean Barlow. Sean produces the program for World Music Productions. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Simon Rantner. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Akornifa Achier. And I'm Georges Collinet. R.I. Public Radio International.